What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Arnie's. We are three Ultra Boys with nothing better to do. I'm Matt Johnson. I believe Aaron Green is a big step up from Julie Taylor. Good job, Matt Saracen. You did it. Texas forever, seven. I'm Keith Baker, and I'm going to go as Voldemort with wings for Halloween. And I'm Austin Terry, and it's been too long since my last confession. Well, I can certainly relate to that, although I won't be confessing to anybody on Crockett Island anytime soon. On today's show, we'll be talking about Mike Flanagan's latest horror series offering on Netflix. We talked about Malignant last week, and we are keeping the spooky trend going this time around. October is officially here. But before we get to all that good stuff, Austin, are there any past episodes our audience should be thinking about? There are, there are. We've had a lot of fun episodes recently on this show. Uh, One of my personal favorites is our look back at the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. I think we had a ton of fun with that recording. We also, if you want to stick with franchises, we did a look at Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man. And like Matt said, last week we talked about James Wan's return to horror with Malignant. So we've had a ton of fun on this show. If any of those pique your interest, be sure to go back and check those out. Yeah, for sure. Go check them out. Lots of good episodes in there. But guys, I know it's been a while since we talked about TV. Like Austin mentioned, we did do What If before that. We had a little bit of a break. So since we are back talking about TV, we did bonus series last year. I I feel like we mostly talked about TV last year, to be honest. And we always did this in our episodes, so I wanted to bring it back. Is there anything besides Midnight Mass and What If that we should be watching? What are you guys watching on TV? What's good? What should the audience know about? Well, Matt, just before we started recording, I watched the finale of Ted Lasso on Apple TV. Well, awesome. I'm about to destroy your world right now. This was not the finale of Ted Lasso. There is one more episode. Oh, thank God, because I thought this was the <laughs> weirdest finale I've ever seen yeah. in my life. I was like, they didn't wrap done. up anything. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Ted Lasso, though, I'm right there with Austin. I mean... What a great show, endlessly positive, but at the same time, they have serious, serious moments in the show that really kind of grounds it and just helps you relate to the characters, and I just love them all. So I'm right there with you. What about you, Keith? Have you been watching anything good? Because I always feel like Keith doesn't have as many recommendations as Austin and I, but his recommendations, while they might not be quantity, always quality. I've been watching, and I just finished what's on uh, Peacock, uh, Yellowstone. With Kevin Costner. Ooh, I've been meaning to watch that. You guys would love it. It is awesome. It's a great thriller. Uh, yeah, it's an awesome show, so I definitely recommend checking it out. Yeah, my last one's going to sound really kind of obvious, but um, The Many Saints of Newark, The Sopranos movie, just came out today on HBO Max when we're recording this. So obviously, I'm not recommending that since that's a movie, but if you have not watched The Sopranos, this really is the perfect time. They're giving you this amazing prequel story. So if you have not checked out this series, one of the best of all time for sure, now's the time. And then afterwards, go check out the movie. I have not watched The Sopranos. Yeah, I've been wanting, that's one I've really been wanting to start. It's just one of those shows I got to say, I mean, it's like if somebody recommended Breaking Bad to you and you'd never watch it, you would still watch it today and be like, yeah, that really held up in pretty much every way. Sopranos, same thing. I mean, you're going to watch that even though everybody's told you it's one of the best ever and you're still going to think it's the best ever. Holds up so well. But with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic for today's show. Like we said at the top, we're big fans of Mike Flanagan and particularly The Haunting of Hill House. He followed that up last year at The Haunting of Blind Manor, and he's already put out his next big project, Midnight Mass. While all three of these stories are extremely character-focused, have characters dealing with trauma and guilt most of the time, and have twists and turns along the way, I would say all three definitely have a varying degree of scares. They're probably all equally horrific in terms of the subject matter they are tackling, 
but not scary or jump scary in the traditional sense. I think we all agree that Hill House knocked it out of the park with the scares and quality, while Blind Manor was really good, we were all a little bit let down since we went in thinking it would be a bit scarier. Now, I'm curious to hear what we all think of something like Midnight Mass. Like, where does that fall in the spectrum? Is it both really scary and high quality? Is it not that scary, but high quality? Or does it lack in both departments? That's what we're going to break down today. So, without further ado, Austin and Keith, give me your brief thoughts on Mike Flanagan's past work, as well as your non-spoiler thoughts on Midnight Mass as a whole. And we're going to get into some detail in a bit. Yeah, my thoughts on Mike Flanagan... um... I've, I've really kind of enjoyed everything he's done. Um, I really liked his first kind of start with the Oculus franchise. Gerald's Game, I thought, was a really good adaptation of a Stephen King novel. And uh, Doctor Sleep, I think, is a really great um, underrated sequel to The Shining. Um, and then kind of going into his works on Netflix, Hill House will always be the standout for me. I think it's like just the perfect horror uh, show. Um, it's so scary. It's got such great acting. And it, it has a, a really good, compelling story all the way through um, all episodes. My only nitpick with Hill House is I do think once you know the twist, it retroactively makes it less scary. So I've never gone back to it for that reason. But I think that first overall viewing is super great and really terrifying. Uh, and Bly Manor was honestly a bit of a letdown for me because it wasn't as scary as Hill House. It was a great story, but it really didn't live up to the spooks. And I think uh, Midnight Mass kind of falls in the middle of the two of them. It's definitely not as scary as Hill House, but it does have some great kind of standout scary moments. It's got a really interesting story, um, great character pieces, great acting, and um, I had a great time on this watch. So I'm not sure how you two feel, uh, so I can't wait to get into it with you guys. Yeah, for me with Mike Flanagan, I guess the first thing I ever saw was uh, Hill House. I don't think I ever saw the Oculus movies or uh, Gerald's Game, which I want to go back and watch Gerald's Game because I was looking at stuff with um, Carlo Gugino, who I'm a big fan of. Um, so yeah, definitely want to go back and watch that one. It's awesome. Yeah. It's really, really good. That's what I've heard. Oh yeah, so Hill House was my my first encounter with him, and Hill House knocked it out of the park for me. Super scary, like you said, awesome. The story is awesome. The characters are awesome, and I think it wraps up in a pretty cool way. As far as Bly Manor, Bly Manor was a lot slower for me. That one was a really tough watch for me. I still think it was really good. Just a slower burn. I think the ending of that one might have been better than Hill House for me, but the build up to it just took forever. And I was like, God dang, this is a slow show. Um, and then going into Midnight Mass, yeah, I loved it. I loved the Midnight Mass. I definitely liked how it got away from like the house, uh, like the haunted house sort of thing. So now that we have like a an island with some creepy people on it and some creepy things on it, uh, I liked how you kind of changed it up in that way. Where the story was going to go, um, I didn't quite know until maybe two or three episodes in. Um, so yeah, it was really cool. I enjoyed it overall. And... Yeah, I'm excited to see where we all fall on it. All righty. Well, then I guess I got to go ahead and echo some of your guys' sentiments. I really love Mike Flanagan. I think Oculus is fantastic. I think Dr. Sleep. I don't think I loved it as much as Austin, but I still was really impressed by it. it had no right being as good as it was, for sure, being a sequel to The Shining. And you just watched that recently, right? Uh, I guess it was last like Halloween. Yeah, I watched that for the okay. first time. And definitely impressed. Um, definitely worth watching for sure. Now, when it comes to his TV work, I just find this guy extremely ambitious and impressive. Hill House, I said it on our Bly Manor episode last year, I think, and I'm including everything here. I know there's a lot of them, but I truly do believe that The Haunting of Hill House is the best Netflix original series ever. I think just with the content that they covered, 
the way they told the story, the pacing, the acting, the character development, I just think it's unparalleled. I thought it was phenomenal. And Blind Manor, I agree with you guys, it's really, really good. It's just, I think we were all kind of sold a bill of false goods a little bit whenever it was like, oh, it's finally the anthology is continuing. Yeah, the marketing hurt that movie, yes, for sure. I completely agree. It was a really, show. really good, but it's just not scary. And Keith, you talked about how they got away from the haunted house element. And I really, really want to know if at any point Netflix was like, we should call this the haunting of Crockett Island. I really want to know if this was supposed to be the third in the anthology. And Mike Flanagan was like, no, we're going to get away from that. And we'll come back to it later. But this needs to be its own thing because you're so right. I actually may have the answer for you. Oh, okay. To that question. All right. Well, what you got for me? What you got? So Hill House and Bly Manor were both adaptations of other works. That's so true. you kind of have that to go true. with those. Like he went with those titles because he was adapting other works. Yeah. Midnight Mass is an original story. It's okay. actually a story he's been trying to get made since 2014. So before he did any of this, he tried mm-hmm. to do a show. Nobody wanted it, including Netflix. They passed on it. Tried to do a movie. Nobody would buy that. Tried to do a novel. Nobody wanted that either. And he actually used the Midnight Mass prop book in his two films, in Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep. And, and whenever the crew would ask him about it, he would say, that's the best thing I'll ever make. Like, that was his response. So he's been trying to make this forever. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah, I like that. Really I like cool. that a lot. Um, and yeah, I think maybe it'll take us talking about it a little bit. Midnight Mass, in short, I loved it. I thought it was phenomenal. Now, the question of, do I care that it's not as scary as something like Kill House? I think now that we've gotten something like Blind Manor that was this beautiful gothic romance set in kind of a horror-type manner, now that we've gotten that, I don't care as much that this one isn't as, like, traditionally scary. Like, I, I just really embraced the story from the get-go. I thought the characters were way better. They spent more time with each of them. The ensemble was fantastic. And I thought, Keith, like you talked about, I thought this one had an equally slow build to the finale, but I was just more interested in that build. And I thought the finale was even more impressive than something like Bly Manor. So yeah, I got to say Midnight Mass, I I just thought it was awesome. Is it better than Hill House? Probably not, but I, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. I think the build is better in this one too, is because it, it doesn't have a bunch of like diverging stories. Yeah. That was the biggest problem with Blind Manor, I thought. Yeah, Blind yeah. Manor had a ton of it, and it, it did get lost and a little bit jumbled. Whereas this one, it's one set story told from the beginning to the end of all seven episodes. Characters come in and out of that story, but overall it's one set story that we're building through. It's a very slow build, like you guys have said. But I think, Blind Manor, I don't think it's supposed to be scary. I think like Mike Flanagan's kind of playing with you a little bit there. He's like, it's we're going to set it in a creepy environment, but I'm not going to tell you a scary story. Whereas here he is kind of trying to tell you a scary story. And I think because of that kind of goal of this show, I think it is still scarier than Blind Manor. Definitely not super scary, but I do like that there is like actual scary things in this thing that are happening and they're like real scary things, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes sense because it's like, sure, it's not as jump scary or whatever, but is there anything scarier? I'm not being hyperbolic. To me, I don't know if there's anything scarier than being trapped on an island 30 miles in any direction is where the mainland is. And I'm trapped on this small place with like a hundred people and they're all just religious fanatics. That sounds horrific. That sounds (laughs) really scary. (laughs) So it's a show that's really, really scary in its subject matter. It's just not like every second something's like jumping out at you or whatever. So 
that part worked for me. But before we get much further, I think let's go ahead and drop the spoiler warning. So everybody out there, I'm really happy to report it. Sounds like all three of us are really, really enjoyed Midnight Mass. So if you have not watched it, go ahead and check it out. It's only seven episodes. I think you'll get a lot out of it. And from this point on, we're going to be doing all spoilers all the time. We're going to get into some good, good, juicy detail. And there's a lot to break down. So come on back after you've watched it. All righty. So here we are. It is spoiler territory for those of you that need a quick refresher. Midnight Mass is about an isolated island community that is experiencing miraculous events and frightening omens after the arrival of a charismatic, mysterious young priest. Before we go too much further, Austin and Keith, how about you guys break down the cast and crew for me? Austin, tell me about the crew side of things. All right. Of course, Midnight Mass is created and directed by Mike Flanagan. Um, I didn't realize this, but he didn't direct every episode of Bly Manor. So this is his first time returning to directing a whole season mm. um, since Hill House. It's also written by Mike Flanagan, uh, James Flanagan, Ellen Gale, Danny Parker, and Jeff Howard. And our score is composed by the Newton brothers, who have also worked on past projects with Mike Flanagan as well. Yeah, and going through our cast, we have Kate Siegel as Aaron Green, Zach Guilford as Riley Flynn, Hamish Linklater as Father Paul, also the young Monsignor Pruitt. Samantha Sloyan as Bev Keen. Kristen Lehman as Annie Flynn. Rahul Kohli as Sheriff Hassan. He's returning from Bly Manor. Annabeth Gish as Sarah Gunning. Alex Esso as Mildred Gunning. And Henry Thomas as Ed Flynn. All right, guys. There's a cast and crew. Any positives or negatives? Yeah, I've got a huge positive. And that is Hamish Linklater as Father Paul. This guy is incredible in this show. He has so many monologues. He has so many scenes where he has to be charismatic or the show overall just wouldn't work. Every scene he's in, he steals the show. I like could not take my eyes off him. I couldn't look away from what he was saying. Like he was just so engaging. Um, I just all the preaching scenes should have been really boring. And because he's the one giving the message, they're really interesting and really fun. Um, I was just blown away with him in this show. Uh, yeah, for me, it would be Samantha Sloyan as Bev Keen. She played such a creepy little conniving little bitch. You can say it. You can say That's fair for me. She is something. But yeah, she played a really good part. Her character was just pissing me off the whole time. It's such a good character, but she was just, you just want her, you just want to punch her in the face the entire time. And it's it's so true, Keith, because everybody has met people like this in their life where it's this religious person who doesn't know they're a bad person and they're using their faith to be a bad person. Like everybody has had an experience with that person. And, and Samantha Sloyan just nailed that, that role so perfectly. Yeah. She was great. Definitely agree. And you guys have put me in an interesting position. I was going to say Hamish Linklater first, and then I was going to say Samantha Sloyan. So now I can only say one and I'm left with a pretty big cast of hits here. I got to say, I think I know what I have to do. I know what I have to do in terms of the character and what the show asked of them and the way they fit into this world and the performance. I just I got to shout out Rahul Kohli as Sheriff Hassan. I thought when first watching the show initially in the early episodes, I was like, what's this guy's role going to be? You know, he's just the sheriff, obviously an outsider in terms of uh, the religion. Is that going to play into it? And every time I found myself asking a question Like in that sense, like the next episode would address it. You know, he's sitting in the classroom 
talking about how he feels uncomfortable with the Bible being sent home. And it's like, that's really cool. And it, in the same way, every episode, it feels like he as an actor is almost just doing more and more without ever, without ever overacting. He never goes into that territory. I thought he was fantastic. Um, and by the end, I got to say, I was getting pretty emotional with that character's kind of arc and his son and everything there. And I just thought the performance was great. He was great in Bly Manor too, but I was so happy that this show actually used him in a purposeful way because I remember with Bly Manor, while I thought he was really good in it, I felt like his character felt kind of like a standout in terms of, it just feels like everybody else is super important. He just kind of comes in and out of the story, whereas here, very important, and he was always great. So I loved it. This is the best thing I've ever seen or who will do. He oh, was so yeah, good. For sure. So emotional, just hands down the best thing that he's done so far, and I can't wait to see what he does next. Yeah, I thought he was really good in Bly Manor, but yeah. he topped it in this one, though. So we usually talk about the critical response, so we'll do that, too. Again, this is a newer show, so not as much to talk about, but still it might be interesting. So Rotten Tomatoes has reported a 91% approval rating. The website's consensus reads, an ambitious meditation on grief and faith that is as gorgeous as it is unsettling. Midnight Mass's slow boil is a triumph of terror that will leave viewers shaking and thinking long after the credits roll. Positive reviews consistently called out the performances, particularly Linklater and Sloan, the thoughtful nature, reflection on various religions and their beliefs, and the satisfying build to the finale. The negative reviews primarily focused on sometimes weak resolutions to the ideas presented in the show, some characters feeling a little hollow in comparison to others, and the main one I could find is that there may be a few too many monologues, and the show overall may be a little bit too dialogue-focused at times. Yeah, I definitely think there's some good points on both sides there. Is there anything that stands out to either of you, whether it comes to a positive or negative? The main thing I can agree with is a few too many monologues. Yeah, um, I, I especially felt it in the finale when we're wrapping up, and then we cut back for one more Aaron Green monologue. It's yeah. like, oh, that one, you know, you're, I'm feeling the runtime here. But uh, other than that, I just thought the show was so good. Yeah, I can agree with the monologues going on a little bit too long. But as far as it being too dialogue-focused, I don't know if I really agree with that. I thought they had a pretty good mix of just the thrilling action mixed with some crazy dialogue with Father Paul going on his rants and all that and, and the other guys combating him against his religious uh, confusion. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it was I think the dialogue was pretty much all necessary. But, yeah, I do agree that the monologues maybe could have gone on a little bit too long. Yeah, that's a good point, Keith, because I don't know if this show works without being so dialogue focused. Exactly. No, probably not. I mean, that's the main point of it. I mean, you kind of had to have it all. It's all necessary. Yeah, I'm glad you guys brought that up because my problem wasn't the monologues. My thing was the whole way it was shot, I think. Like, every single monologue was just either what you call in, like improv or just like in scene studies, like standing and talking. It's like every single one where it's like Riley and Father Paul are talking. They're just sitting across from each other in chairs in the same room. And it's just a camera's on them slowly zooming in. And it's the dialogue is fantastic. It's really it's genuinely thought provoking. I found myself many times throughout this show going like, oh, wow, I, I never really thought of that. That's a pretty w interesting way to think about that. I, I really appreciate that. But at the same time, it's like every shot looked the same. Same thing with Aaron Green and Riley sitting in their house. It's like it just every shot looks the same. I love what they're saying. It's just I wish maybe they could have done a cutaway while Aaron's talking about her faith. And maybe it goes to like Riley's parents or the Scarboroughs or just somebody to like show the faith in practice. It just at, at some points during the monologues that which were like 
I mean, I went back and checked. I mean, there were some that were like 12 plus minutes long and it was just on characters' faces the whole time. And the dialogue was great. It's just it got a little bit like, okay, yeah, it's kind of slow just because they're not actually changing the shot. So that was my only negative. I'm definitely reaching because despite that, I love the scenes, kind of like Keith said. So I understand that point of maybe too many, but still, I got to agree with all the positives here. I mean, the show was so good to me. So I guess I have two things there. One of them, I guess, with just being in the same setting over and over and holding on characters for so long, did that not add to the feeling of like being trapped on this island for you? Because for me, it it kind of made me feel like I'm I'm just kind of stuck here with these characters. I think it did. It's just, you know, when you're seven episodes and each episode is doing it multiple times, it's even that gets to a point where it's like, look, I get it. It's a small island. It's, you know, a confined feeling. But as a viewer now, it's like I'm not thinking about that anymore this many episodes in. Now I'm just not enjoying these scenes as much. Or it's more just like my mind is drifting. That's probably the worst thing I could say is just like I did have to rewind a few times in the show because despite the fact that I loved what they were saying and I wanted to hear it, you know, I, I did get a little bit distracted at times just because I'm watching the same thing and the same shot for like 10 plus minutes. So I would have to just kind of go back a little bit to refresh myself and be like, OK, that's what they said. So, again, I'm reaching. It's a small thing. It's just that I think at a point it becomes less about feeling confined and more just like maybe there's too many of these monologues. I gotcha. And then I guess the other thing I have is just something to ponder. Um, so speaking of like kind of the bare nature of the set and just things holding on characters while they're talking. I don't know if you guys know this, but this was actually the first American show to try and film during COVID. They were the first one. So they didn't have any rules or guidelines on how to do things. They had an 83 day shoot in Vancouver. And due to all of their like restrictions and enforcements of like safety protocols, they didn't have to shut down once during production. They made it through the whole thing without delays and finished on time. So they did, they did have very strict rules on set, but it did allow them to not have any delays. So I wonder if just they had like less characters in the scene to make like COVID filming easier or like have less people behind the camera, like in a room with people. Like, I wonder if part of that is why some of the scenes do kind of seem a little bare while we're doing these monologues. I hope that's something we won't know until like Flanagan's next show comes out and he's doing interviews for that. And people are like, hey, remember when you did Midnight Mass, like all those monologues, is that because of COVID or is it something else? So. It's a it's a good point, and I'm glad it is on the record right now on the Arnie's. Do they do that many monologues because they're trying to be safe? Who the hell knows? All right, guys, so we have brought up tons of great points so far, but at this point, I don't want to strict any of us. Let's get into it. Going to just open it up. It's going to be a free-form discussion. What do we want to talk about when it comes to Midnight Mass? Let's talk about the opening with Riley Flynn killing a person in a drunk driving accident. That was... Not yeah. really where I thought this show was going to open up as far as like a horror miniseries. So what do you guys think about that? I started out a little bit confused uh, because it opens with him giving that prayer over the person he just killed. And so I thought he was coming back to the island as like an ex-priest. Okay. Gotcha. Well, I do think it makes a bit more sense uh, when we get into it later because he's a guy that has lost his faith. So at that point, he hadn't. And so the fact that he realized he just killed somebody, he's saying a prayer. I read it that he was saying a prayer for himself to like oh, ask okay. for forgiveness See, I, yeah. to the father. I was just really confused because I was like, okay, this is a guy who was a priest, did something terrible, lost his faith, and now has to go home. That's what I thought it was. Um, mm. So just, I could just see a little that, bit though. confused, but great that. opening. And then 
really effective. I I am a bit tired though with Mike Flanagan of like the I did something terrible and now this person's ghost is going to keep popping up over and over like that. I'm a bit yeah. sick of that because we've done it three times in a row now. Yeah, the bent neck lady in Hill House and then um the main character in Blind Manor had her uh like ex husband or boyfriend like get run Killed over and she like yeah. she's always saw him with the glasses on but they had the headlights in it so. He definitely uses that a lot, but you know what? It looked really damn cool, and it's scaring me every single time. But it really only lasted like what three episodes? Yeah, they kind of they kind of just dropped off after that. That's because he only lasts three episodes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, well, the way I saw it though, I just to me it just sounded like a, a a kid who just got into a bad situation and was just in shock, and so he didn't know where to turn. He's a lot of people turn to religion at that point, or some people turn to other things, but he was just in shock and just saying a prayer that's what i that's how i that's how i read it but yeah and i mean clearly i mean it's the opening of the show so we're not supposed to have those answers yet yeah and then like you know soon after we see him go back to the island four years later after getting out and you know things come a bit more to light i guess things make more sense with the riley flynn character and riley flynn in general as a character i mean i found super fascinating Having him kind of be our POV character for a while, despite the fact that we have this huge ensemble, I really loved. And just watching him kind of go through the motions in this island that seemingly everybody is so invested in this church to have somebody that wasn't, that it kind of allowed him to be a bit more flexible in terms of the community. He's kind of walking around, talking to more people. He's an AA, so we get to see him interact with Joe Colley, for example, who nobody seems to interact with. So... I really like that element, the fact that he's trapped, and he even says as much, he's trapped in this community, this island, but he doesn't believe what they do. So it it really kind of lent to a great character, and Zach Guilford, I thought, did an incredible performance. So just, in general, really awesome character. Love the introduction. I'm not even making a joke, though. I didn't realize his name was Riley Flynn until the last episode he was in. Like, even, I watch shows with subtitles on, and I was reading his character's name as Matt. I literally thought his character's name was Matt the whole time because he just looks like Matt Saracen. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. All right. So Riley Flynn is, of course, the first character we're introduced to. But like we said, this is a huge ensemble. Very quickly, we meet people like Aaron Green, Bev Keen, Father Paul, Sheriff Hassan, and so many more. So just in general, I mean, I know we talked about the performances earlier, but what did you think of this ensemble of characters? What did you think of them when we were being introduced to them? I think my favorite thing about it is that they all have their own relationships with each other. Like Aaron Green and Bev Keen don't interact a lot, but they have a contentious relationship at the school. Yeah. Um, Father Paul leads the community. Riley and Aaron have their relationship. Riley and Bev have some kind of back and forth every now and then. Like I I like that everybody has has a history with each other because it is such a small community. And then you got uh, Riley's little brother. He likes Lisa. Lisa's dad's the mayor. They're super religious and they just do... Whatever Father Paul says. Somehow really easy to like keep track of everybody too, even though it is yeah. such a huge cast. Didn't they say it was like a population of 127? 127. Yeah. I mean, it's a great point you guys are both making. I mean, the fact that there, I mean, it is a huge ensemble of characters we're following, but I feel like by the end of the show, we're, we're probably meeting close to 127 characters. So it's like they somehow introduced us to everybody, gave them all somewhat of a personality, and... I mean, it was really interesting. I feel like they did a great job of making it feel like an ensemble cast, but trapping them all in such a small space that we're forced to get to know them 
and their various interactions, like you said, Austin. So since we're kind of starting at the beginning, what were your theories on the monster to start out? We had this weird cat thing on the island. We had this creature that's eating uh, that's eating these cats. What, what were you guys thinking was going on here? Because I had no clue this was going to be a vampire show. Like that was nope. out, totally out of left field for me. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't What'd either. You think, I, yeah, yeah. I thought the the island was being haunted by Monsieur Monsignor Pruitt, and that uh-huh. and that okay. Father Father Paul was covering for him. I knew that. I had a feeling that Monsignor Pruitt was not actually in the hospital. And you can just kind of like have that instinct. I was like, okay, no, something's going on with Pruitt. And then whenever Riley sees him on the beach during the storm, I'm like, okay, this guy's definitely on the island. Mm-hmm. He's haunting people. He might be, most likely, might be the one killing the cats. So who knows why, but but this guy is definitely not back on the mainland like Pruitt says, or like um, Father Paul says. Yeah, hundred um, so That's where I was at the beginning, thinking that Pruitt was a different guy than Father Paul. Yeah, um, and I do love that at the same time they introduced us to Father Paul, just dragging this huge like a uh, case around with him, and right away he comes into his little uh, house behind the church, and he just drops the case, taps on it. And then after he's done, there's just this hollow tapping from inside. It's like, what the hell is going on? And then he opens it. But I'm still with you, Austin. I had no idea what was happening in terms of, so is this monster related to that? What is this monster? What's the purpose? And then later I was like, with Keith, I was like, does this have to do with the fact that this old priest is gone but should be back? Like, I have no idea. And then at the end, Riley Flynn is chasing Monsignor Pruitt during a storm. I was like, what? What's going on? Yeah, so I had no idea. And whenever you think about it retroactively, the vampire was just dressed as Monsignor Pruitt, just running on the beach <laughs> so and not flying goofy. away. It makes you go, hmm, <laughs> that's stupid. <laughs> but it was Why was still, he running from Riley? He should have killed him or flown away. I don't have an answer for you there. <laughs> <laughs> I went back after watching the finale and watched the first episode, and I definitely got a lot out of it, except that scene. I was like, is this just this is just supposed to be a red herring, I guess, to make us feel like Monsignor yeah. Pruitt's back? It doesn't actually make sense why the vampire would just like casually run away. <laughs> I thought it was kind of cool how Aaron and Riley kind of had similar paths. Not so much that Aaron killed somebody in a DUI accident, but Aaron also left the island for a long period of time. Yeah, and had a had a pretty crazy life as well. And then she found her way back. And then same with Riley; he had a crazy path of all the partying and the drinking and all that. Uh, it's just kind of cool how there's just some weird force driving these people to the island. Same with the uh, the sheriff and his son. So I just kind of liked that background little theme to those three characters. I also like too how like every character recognizes whether they like the island or not that at some point they probably should have tried to leave, but they're still here. At some point, they all acknowledge like. There's probably better things out there, but we're still here for some reason. Like, I kind of like that everybody is aware that this isn't like the best place to live. Like, nobody is like kind of fooled by that. Yeah. And Riley even acknowledges that, but in a strange way when he says, I've been in prison for four years. I had this great job before I went in. I made a lot of money. But now that I'm here, I have no job. I have no prospects. I'm living with my parents. I can't get a job. I'm literally trapped here and it's so fitting because I'm in this, you know, damn island where I can't go anywhere. So it's almost like he's acknowledging that everybody else could leave and do something more, do something better, but he can't and he's trapped. So 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, just, I mean, just the island setting in general. I mean, really smart because it's not a haunted house, but it allows us to meet a lot of characters at once while giving us this more open space, which was cool. Yeah, so, I mean, kind of moving into the middle of the show, when did you guys start to recognize, or did you always kind of have a suspicion that Father Paul was not what he seemed? So, like I said, I didn't suspect him at the beginning, because, but I did have suspicions. In the first episode, whenever he has this huge chest and he's banging on it, then clearly somebody's banging from inside. It's like, what's going on with that? But then, after that, he seemed relatively normal, and I was like, okay, I guess I trust this guy for now. But then very quickly, I mean, in episode three or four, he does this whole confession where he basically reveals Monsignor Pruitt's true past. And then he kind of also reveals his past. And then, of course, the great twist being they're the same person. He's talking about the same person. And he went through this crazy situation, got attacked by a fucking vampire. <laughs> and then he that caused him to basically go from. Monsignor Pruitt, this old man with dementia, to becoming the peak version of himself, as he calls it, as uh, Father Paul, the fake version, but he has become his younger self again. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I guess I kind of always suspected Father Paul, just because with a character like that, when they're just introduced the way they were, like, I'm I'm here, Monsignor Pruitt's gone. Like, you're just always going to kind of naturally be suspicious of that. I was surprised at how, like, kind of endeared I became to Fathered Paul, though, throughout the show. Like, I like the relationship he has with Riley. I like that he's doing positive things on the island. Like, he still is a, a pretty easy character to root for, despite the fact that he has kind of twisted this interaction with the vampire to, to be seen as a thing for good, when in reality, he's going to be harming this island overall. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same thing. I, when he first came in, I was like, oh, yeah, something's off about this guy. Like, he's telling everybody Mincere is back in, back in the mainland in the hospital. It's probably not true. And then, like you said, Austin, when he starts forming this like um, relationship with Riley through AA, I was like, okay, this guy's actually pretty genuine and pretty nice guy. I think he like actually has good intentions. And then I started kind of losing that suspicion for him. And then, of course, it came back um, <laughs> like one episode later. Um, so, yeah, pretty wild ride. But I do agree with you, though, that he I think he is a good guy. And he just got twisted by the wrong, the wrong demon or vampire, whatever you want to call it. Well, I think you can call it both. I mean, he got twisted by yeah. the wrong vampire and the wrong demon was this just fucked up. There's, there's, you know, there's a lot of bad priests out there, but I think there are a lot of good priests out there that, you know, mean to do well. I think it seemed like he was one of those people based on how people talk about Monsignor Pruitt, but he was also clearly twisted by his own beliefs and the war that people should go to against like the people that don't believe in God and all that weird shit that Mildred calls out later. I mean, yeah, so he was a very conflicting character, but he did seem to want to help people. But then he also, it's like technically he didn't kill Joe Colley, but it's like it seemed like he was going to. So it is kind of this weird back and forth where it's like, do I like this character? Or do I not like this character? And by the end, I'm kind of with you. They did the whole just great transformation. They did some great writing where it's like, this guy did some really bad shit. Same with Riley Flynn, for example, who killed somebody. But by the end of the show, it's you're endeared to them. You're rooting for them to find redemption. It's not like you're rooting for them as a person. It's just you're rooting for them to be better and do better. And I think with both Monsignor Pruitt and Riley, they really did a good job with that. Yeah, I think the thing that I was wrestling with with Father Paul throughout the show was, okay, is this guy 
twisting the Bible and using these people's faith for his own gain, or does he genuinely believe what he's saying? And by the end, it's like, oh no, he believes what he's saying. He, right. he means he is trying to do what he thinks is the right thing. He's not. He's definitely not the villain of the show. Um, no. And so I do like. I did like the fact that he genuinely believes what he's saying. Um, kind of like the whole practice what you preach, you know, old saying. It's like he believes everything he's saying, and it just he's going about trying to do his job the wrong way. He's trying to give everybody eternal life by having them be reborn, if you want to call it that, as a vampire, essentially. But he wants to give everybody eternal life and the options to make second chances and all that bullshit, whatever you want to say. Um, And there are some weird elements, like he's talking with Riley after he transforms him, and it's like he talks to them for an entire day. They do like 12 monologues back and forth. And then he's like, all right, Riley, free will. You're back out into the world. And it's like, I guess if you're going to do that, that's the way to do it. But then the next time he's going to do it, he's trapping like a hundred people inside a church. So he goes from literally one to a hundred. It's like, <laughs> well, just lock him in here and then I'll guide them and it'll be fine. But that also wasn't originally his plan. Bev Keen kind of got in his but ear. But still, it's like when there's a hundred people becoming vampires, how is he going to handle like, oh, don't eat that person. Oh, oh, no, no, don't eat that person, other person. Like, <laughs> it's a lot to handle. So. I still think the character did find some redemption by the end. They did some bad things, but regardless, that part doesn't matter. I thought Father Paul, Monsignor Pruitt, whatever you want to call them, was a very, very fascinating character. Do we have any top-tier spooks uh, that kind of stand out to you? I've got one that I want to say, because I think y'all are going to take it from me, and I want to bring it up. Okay. Um, and that is when Riley goes back to the rec center and encounters the angel the way that thing just turned on a dime and leaped at him oh, was man. like the last thing I was expecting in that moment. And it genuinely made me sit up in my chair and go, oh, fuck, like right as the credits rolled. Like that scene got me so good. Yeah, it got me too. I, I think my adrenaline probably pumped the most during that scene. <laughs> I was not expecting him to just lunge at him like that. Like you said, Austin, I, th- I thought he was going to turn. He's going to have a like a, have like a talk with Father Paul about what the hell that thing was. But no, it was just immediately snapped his neck <laughs> and started sucking the Terrifying. blood. Yeah, it was scary. So quick, too. Yeah. I think that was what scared me the most. And mm-hmm. he lunged across the room. So, like, the reach on that thing is insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I thought that was also cool because whenever he attacked Riley, it's like, wow, we're four episodes in. There's seven episodes. I guess, you know, episode four marks the end of Riley Flynn. But then episode five starts, and I guess you go, well, I guess Pruitt survived, so I guess maybe he'll be revived as a vampire. And then when they reveal that, it's like, okay, cool. So now I guess O'Reilly will survive to the end. That's how they do that. You know, he got revived. So now he's this undead being. And so now he's not going to die again. That would be stupid, right? And then it's like a fake out. It's a subversion. In the same episode that he's introduced as a vampire, he willingly sacrifices himself. And so by the end of episode five, Riley's gone. And it's like, that was really, really fascinating, surprising, and just some great, great character work, I thought. As for genuinely surprising moments, the one that I had to pause and go, Phew, that got me because it didn't involve like loud music or like bum bum, like ah, like it was at uh, the moment where um, Sheriff Hassan is putting his son to bed, and then as he's like putting a picture frame down, and then he just moves his hand up from off this picture frame, and you just see the vampire's orange glow in the eyes, and he's just right in the window, and. <laughs> I just love the sheriff's like, whoa, fuck. 
<laughs> which was my exact same reaction. Yeah. I was genuinely terrified. There had been a couple moments before that of like the vampire kind of peering in in certain instances, but that one really, really got me. I guess one that kind of is similar to that that got me is whenever, um, whenever Mildred's still sick and still kind of old in the bed and Sarah's going up the stairs and all of a sudden you just hear, Sarah, Sarah. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, oh my God. And then, and, 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 Mil- and Sarah just runs down. I was like, what? He's at, something's in the window. Something's in the window. I was like, oh yeah. my God. Oh, terrifying. Freaky. <laughs> God dang. I think that's where this show is, is edging out Bly Manor for me. Is that like, it does have like direct moments you can speak to of like, that was scary. And Bly Manor had like tension, but there wasn't like really any, any like terrifying moments. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Definitely agree there. Yeah. So, what do you got? What did you guys think of the the angel, demon, vampire, whatever you want to call them? Overall, were you guys hoping for more of like a, like a religious kind of like satanic, devilish kind of demon, or were you were you settled on it being more of like a weird vampire monster that it that it actually ended up being? I love the design of the angel. It's so creepy, even when you see it in light. Like, it still looks creepy and it's still unsettling. I did find myself, by the time the show wrapped, though, I'm curious how you guys feel about this. I did find myself wanting more of the demon's presence. Like, I I wanted it to be kind of more involved in the show than it actually was, is what I kind of found myself wishing for. So, I agree, but kind of the double-edged sword, I guess, is that I feel like in a lot of vampire stories, they introduce the the ancient vampire, the one that turned somebody that you thought had been around forever, right? Like, Monsignor Pruitt seems like the OG, but it turns out, oh, that wasn't the original, it was this guy. And and whenever they say this guy, it's always like, it goes from a human to looking like like this fucking winged demon. (laughs) It's like, holy shit! Um, So, with that said, I agree that I would have liked to have seen more, but I did at the same time like the idea that this vampire is introduced, he turns Pruitt into Paul and then turns Riley. And other than that, he kind of just feeds when he wants. And I liked whenever the show transferred in like the second half to, well, now that he has turned a couple people like Riley and Father Paul, they can turn everybody else. Like the main vampire isn't really concerned with that element. It's just like, I'm going to go around at night and feed on stragglers. That's all I'm here to do. That's why Father Paul brought me here. Um, so I like that. Whenever we saw him, thought he was super scary, very well designed. Um, and yeah, whenever he walked into the church, like as uh, the angel, but wearing the whatever you call it, wearing like the clothes of the, the priest, priest, I thought robes, that was yeah. just really a really cool moment. Um, so yeah, sure. It would have been cool to see more of him. But the fact that like more characters got turned and then they were in turn turning other people, I was like, OK, that makes sense. You know, it's kind of a, a typical vampire story in that way. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to know the angel's motivations because he never speaks. Sure. You know what I mean? And yeah. Father Pruitt just kind of took his beliefs and ran with it. Well, that's the cool thing, right? And I agree. I agree. I just, I would like to know what the actual demon was planning there because clearly it's not an angel. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, I guess it's easy to say, well, the vampire just wanted to feed on people and found this as an opportunity to escape this cave in the middle of nowhere and come to this island where they could feed very regularly. So I guess that would be... But it still willingly like got into the trunk. Exactly. So at, at some point they had an agreement, I would assume. Well, you see, it's, it's weird because that part works for me. It's like, hey, I can get in this trunk, I'll take you back to this place, and you can feed 
however much you want. You don't have to wait for random people to walk through this desert to stumble upon you. And they were probably like, okay, that sounds good. But then when it gets further past that, where it's like, well, what are you going to do after we turn everybody? And then they're going to feed on everybody. Are you just going to leave and go somewhere else? That's where it gets a bit weird. And that comes into play later at the end where it's like, are they going to make it to the mainland after Aaron cuts their wings? It's like, it's just a very weird motivation. You're right. We never really got much from them. They just seemed angry sometimes and attacked people that looked at them the wrong way. <laughs> so, yeah, very uninteresting in that sense. Yeah, it was definitely creepier for me when it was in the priest robes in the church. Whenever yeah. the sheriff and uh, Ali try leaving and they just turn, he's right there. Oh, man, that got me. And he was in Great the priest. Scene. Yeah. But then it got a little less scary as it kind of went on. As you kind of like learn like what it is, it's just this like flying, like I said in the beginning, like this Voldemort looking guy with <laughs> wings. Uh, it got a little, little less scary for me, but definitely was uh, scary whenever it uh, attacked Bull, the guy who went into the the abandoned yeah. house. And you, you just see the yellow eyes, kind of like the cats. I'm like, oh, it's just one of the cats. But that's also a great point, Keith, because I rewatched that scene too. And the vampire mimics Bull's voice in that scene. Oh, yeah. Bull calls That's into the right. house like, anybody in there? And then like a, like a couple seconds go by and it's like, you hear like a weird kind of distorted version of, anybody in there? And it's like, whoa, what? And the, that never happened again. I, th- I thought that was like, is, like, yeah, is that a, a typical point. like yeah. vampire power? Maybe it is. I'm just not aware of it if so. But <laughs> that kind of brings me to a natural point here. Did you guys, and maybe I'm dumb. I fully admit I might be dumb when it comes to this stuff. The vampire rules sometimes confuse me, and it's also kind of compounded by the fact that Father Paul is taking the vampire blood and, of course, making that the communion wine, right? But my thing was, like, there are characters that are just killed by the vampire. So is that because they drank too much of their blood? Like Joe Colley, for example. Joe Colley could have come back to life, but they didn't because... Father Paul drank everything. Is that the implication there? No, it's because Father Paul didn't in turn let Joe Colley drink his blood. Oh, so he chose not to. But isn't that the yeah. weird thing then? Why did Father Paul not do that? Because Father Paul did that several times to other characters. And at the end of the show, Father Paul's like, we have to show them a better way. We have to be better. We can't go after people that don't believe... Because at the end of the show, Father Paul's like, you can't kill people that don't believe in God. That's stupid, Bev. But whenever like he kind of kills Joe Colley, he could have saved him, but he doesn't. I think you got to remember, though, that's his first time giving in to the vampiric urges. And sure. it's, it's what he says to Riley. It's like, you're going to give in to it at some point. There's going to be this urge. I think he just wasn't thinking with enough time before Joe Colley died to let him drink from his blood. Yeah. And then like when the main vampire killed bowls did they just drink too much blood and same thing with aaron green at the end like was aaron still alive and they died by being burned aaron just died i guess because i guess yeah, aaron, aaron just died aaron yeah. never drank the blood yeah it's, it's the same thing they never drank from the yeah. vampires yeah blood. it's not like it was bad or anything it just sometimes with vampire rules of the way like they vampires turn other people it did confuse me a few times and i found myself like distracted because i was trying to think how does that work but that's probably just more of a me thing <laughs> Yeah, I was kind of thinking, too, it's like, okay, who's about to come back, and then who's not? And it kind of right. cleared up right. at the end. So we've talked about religion a lot. Um, obviously, this show focuses on that a lot in a different forms. Kind of, you have good people that are just religious. You have genuine 
religious fanatics that that runs their entire life and governs everything they do. And then you have people on this island that you would expect maybe they're Catholic, but no, they're actually um, part of the Islamic religion, which was really fascinating and actually taught me personally a lot that I just genuinely did not know. I feel like a show like this teaching me <laughs> about different religions is a really cool thing. Um, so, yeah, I thought obviously religion plays a big part into the story. What did you guys think of it? I mean, did you feel like what they were exploring was interesting? Were there any standout moments, anything that really jumped out to you as a positive or negative? Because for me, as somebody that isn't particularly religious, I actually found this stuff not only interesting, but extremely engaging. And I would say that's a pretty big positive because it's not something that I really think about in my day to day. But the fact that a show based around that much dialogue when it comes to religion, the fact that I was extremely engrossed in it and people are actually having kind of conversations back and forth about their individual beliefs. I was like, that's pretty cool because <laughs> I, I didn't expect something that, that would actually grab me personally. Yeah, I think you um, said exactly what I would have said. I, I also don't consider myself particularly religious and I still found all the church scenes really engaging, really interesting. Um, I was never bored in this show and I thought for sure when I realized how much religion we were going to be going into, I thought I was going to be bored, uh, but I really wasn't. I found it all really entertaining. I think I'd also add that I liked that there were kind of the different tiers of belief on the island. Like the show wasn't making out like all Catholics to be bad or anything like that. No, like there's all. different levels. And I really like that the show explores like how faith can be good for some people and then also really bad for other people. Like I, I like that there was kind of a, a both sides to it, if you will. Yeah. That's what I got out of too is like, not that there was nothing wrong with religion, but if you take any religion, whether it's Catholicism or Muslim or Buddhism, any religion at all, you take it to an extreme or take some things that are said in the books of those religions too literal, it could lead to bad things. Like Bev Keen's a perfect example of that, Ugh. that she just takes everything too literally in the Bible and, the, yeah. and it just goes to the extreme with it. And that's not what it's about. So, I mean, that's that's kind of how what I got out of it. So I definitely agree with what you guys just said. And it was also cool, even though obviously the more religious characters kind of got, you know, more presentation in the forefront. I thought it was cool by the end that we got to see how the vampires would go after other people on the island that weren't as religious. Uh, there's one character that is turned into a vampire and kills his entire family and is just un has no idea what's going on. And then the only response is. Well, if you had come to church more, you would have understood, you would have been saved, all that stuff. You can't stay here. You have to go die. It's like, oh, my God. It's just like the way they play around with non-believers, believers, and then, of course, believers of different religions is super cool. So I also really loved Father Paul's response in that scene when he tries to go console Howie and say, no, you can come over to my church. And he's like, if, if the doors aren't open for you, then what's the whole point? Like, I really liked how Father Paul was like actually angry in that scene with Bev Keen. Yeah, because yeah. he... Like we said, he tr he spent an entire day trying to whether or not I mean, I guess you could say he failed because within 24 hours of him being with Riley, Riley sacrificed himself for Aaron to go back to and, you know, defeat this vampiric presence. But the point being, Father Paul wanted to turn everybody and then like talk to them and tell them what their purpose should be and then let them go have their own free will, whereas that didn't happen. And Bev just let them loose and kill everybody. Um, I thought it was super cool because Father Paul let them in and that just led to genuinely maybe my biggest jaw drop moment in the show. What He has this beautiful moment where 
We know at this point that he is Sarah's father. He had at one point had an affair, I guess you would call it. I'm not, I don't know if she was married at the time, but with Mildred when they were much, much younger. And they gave birth to Sarah, who's one of our main characters, Annabeth Gish, another great performance in the show. Um, and when they're talking, it's like he has this great, just kind of subtle, quiet back and forth with her. Uh, where he just says that he wished they had more time. He very quickly, just in a few words, acknowledges that he's her father. He's very proud of her and that he loves her. He just invited, like you said, Austin, everybody into the church. But when she, when he sees that she's trying to burn it down, he also immediately understands that. And then he grabs the candle and is about to help her. And when she gets shot, it was a jaw drop for me. I was so shocked and sad by that that oh that really got me that was a highlight of the show for me in terms of surprise and quality of performance and just everything yeah sarah's another great character that we haven't really mentioned so far on this episode um i i loved all of her scenes too and i thought she had a really important role in the show because she kind of takes everything from the scientific approach which is kind of like another tier to all these various religions um on the island so i really liked her role in the show I also really liked that she always thought Monsignor Pruitt was staring at her because she's gay. In reality, it's because he's her father. Like, I, I liked kind of how all, everything kind of ties together. It was a really nice moment when I, like, realized whenever they do reveal that he is her father, it's like, oh, that's really cool if you think back on some of these moments. Yeah, and watching the first couple episodes again after finishing the season, the first time he goes to uh, Mildred and Sarah's house... Uh, Sarah opens the door and his, his initial reaction is like, you can see in his eyes now that you know, is like, she's so beautiful. I can't believe I'm seeing her. I, I, I love her. It's my daughter, but he can't say any of that yet. So he just like, you know, kind of gets in there and performs uh, mass for Mildred and the way he looks at her and he's crying. I didn't, I didn't remember that. Whenever he first sits down with her, this person that he, you know, loves and had a child with that's so much older than him at this point, kind of physically, he starts crying. And I guess I just missed that out of like his eye. I didn't notice it. And it was like, this show I kind of begs a rewatch, I got to say. I mean, it was some great moments I didn't even pick up on. So despite Midnight Mass being a bit more spookier than Bly Manor, I, I do think progressively since Hill House, uh, Mike Flanagan's projects have gotten less scary and kind of more character and, and theme driven. Um, Hill House still was both of those, but I just felt like they did the scary stuff better. Um, are you wanting more spooks from Flanagan's projects? I, or do you like the direction we've been going? What are your thoughts on the future? I, I like the different flip-flop uh, scenarios that he has put us in. I like, I think Hill House is a great start. I think that that's the one that like hooks you because it, yeah, like you said, Austin, it's really scary, but it also has a really cool story and characters. And then Bly Manor is a little bit more of just kind of a, like a cool down from that. Midnight Mass kind of brings you back up a little bit, but not too much. So I, I feel like and I could be wrong. I feel like Mike Flanagan might be building for something super scary later on. Like he might take out the deep character developments that he's been doing and just do something wickedly scary, just to kind of give I us a big, so. give us a big bang. Don't say that, Keith. Yeah. I hope so. Don't get my hopes up. <laughs> yeah, I could see that too. I definitely think maybe he. I mean, clearly, Bly Manor. He adapted Turn of the Screw, and then, like Austin said at the beginning, he was adapting something that he wanted to do. This original story of his for such a long time. So maybe now that he's done those two things, he'll do something a bit more scary. But I got to say, if I get more shows from him that have scenes like Riley Flynn sacrificing himself, 
watching him confront the person in this weird dream state before he dies and goes to oblivion, as he puts it, and then burns to death, watching Aaron's reaction, watching her die, watching her version of heaven. I mean, these genuinely beautiful scenes, these tearjerkers, watching Sheriff Hassan do his final prayer, watching Bevkeen watch, and just this fucking coward try and dig a hole to save herself. They're not scary, but they're so just powerful. If I get scenes like this, I got to say, maybe I would take this. Don't get me wrong. I I do. I love this. I just I want to see what he can do if he just if he just tries to go, I'm going to make some things terrifying. Yeah, that's what I want to see. I agree. I agree with you. It's just now that I'm at a point where it's like, God, he's given me so much good stuff. If he does something super scary, can he also give me this good stuff? I don't know. So we'll see what happens. I mean, clearly Netflix loves him. They're going to give us tons of good content going forward. So we're going to see a lot from Mike Flanagan. We'll see some more options. But um, yeah, love the show. Can't wait to see what he does next. It's also cool when you do some like further reading on the show, just how personal this project is to Mike Flanagan. Um, he was an altar boy for 12 years. He grew up on an island similar to Crockett Island. Uh, his father was in the Coast Guard, so they were stationed um, on an island off the coast of New York Harbor. Um, he struggled with alcoholism. He doubted his faith and went searching for other religions. So he's he's a lot of his personal demons were really put into this one, and mm. it turned out to be a masterpiece. So uh, more credit to him. Yeah, that's, really, that's cool. really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, good for him for being willing to kind of share that um, and in such a really <laughs> fucking cool show just like kind of sharing that experience in a cool way is really hard to do so good for him um but kind of with that you know austin talked a lot about what flanagan brought into this before we kind of wrap up here of course we have the ending i did not expect that uh warren flynn and lisa scarborough would be our only survivors out of this entire ensemble cast I kind of wish we had gotten a little bit more of those two just based on the fact that they would be our final two survivors. It felt like they were very big in the first few episodes and then kind of left after that. But despite that, I thought the ending was very beautiful, watching everybody kind of willingly go to their deaths. Um, But yeah, that's just me. So what do you guys think of the ending before we close out here? The ending was strangely beautiful. Yeah. Which is kind of weird to say with people burning up in front of you. Um, But it it really was, and paired with the singing. Um, I also did like that it was open-ended with the demon flying away. Uh, you you don't see the demon actually fall into the ocean, so there is still room for theories that maybe it made it to the mainland. Um, I, I really thought this was just a perfect ending for the story that was being told. Yeah, whenever Aaron asks, like, do you think you made it? And then Sarah's like, I'm going to go ahead and choose, um, you know, I'm going to go ahead and decide that they did make it. And it was kind of cool. You know, that ended up happening. Um, and then, yeah, with um, Aaron cutting the demon's wings as one last, like, fuck you. Uh, yeah, that was perfect. And then, as like you said, Austin, with everything burning around him, you were, like, thinking, like, oh, man, this is kind of sad. Like, it's just, like, a such a hellish environment now, the way it's ending. But, yeah, it was oddly kind of peaceful, too. I really like that you said hellish there because with everything being on fire and then you see kind of the demon flying above that, like, it's a demon from hell. Like yeah. it, that's what it looks like in that scene. And then I think it was pretty fitting with um the Flynn couple, the older Flynn couple, Riley's parents, with them kind of deciding, nah, we're not gonna we're not gonna eat people. Like we're we're gonna go out of this thing the right way. Yeah, never never lose sight of who you are. Just such a great line. Yeah, exactly. I think I appreciated 
I think, you know, the whole thing of the demon, it's like, do they make it or not? I guess my thing is I don't really care. I feel like if there's this weird, there's never going to be a sequel to this, but if there was and they revealed, oh, the the vampire made it to the mainland and there's a new community. It's like that would invalidate everything that Aaron Green sacrificed in order to make sure that didn't happen by cutting the wings. That's a James Wan produced horror sequel 100%, right there, baby. 100%. We're never going to get a sequel to this, but... I, I still love the fact that they left it up to debate a little bit. And um, the fact that it was this hellish landscape, it looked fantastic. But despite that, despite that, there was some beauty in it. I love just Henry Thomas. And Henry Thomas in this show I thought was great. Unsung hero as Ed Flynn. So many great moments. Kristen Lehman as Annie Flynn, equally great. But the fact that everybody's killing each other and he's just roaming the streets and he was turned right away and he's not killing anybody and he talks about how He's starving, but he's just, it's not something he's going to do. It's just the fact that there were just characters that they couldn't do that. They didn't want to do that. There was nothing in them that could make them do that to somebody else. I thought was another kind of good element of faith in the show. The fact that because of who they are, because of what they believe, they couldn't physically do that to somebody else. And I like that there were characters like that in the show that wouldn't do that. And it made their ending so much more powerful. Even the characters that did fucked up shit, like Surge and Uker. There's a character in the show, by the way, called Uker, which that's interesting. Um, and I didn't know that. <laughs> it's Warren's friend that has long hair that's very racist. His name's Uker? His name's Uker. He's a racist piece of shit who deserved Uker. to die. Um, his name is spelled O-O-K-E-R. I'm not kidding. Um, Sounds like Uki. Uki. But Surge has this a moment where he like takes him aside whenever they know they're all going to die after the rec center burns. And he's just like, Hey, are you okay? And he's like, I'm not okay. I think I killed my mom. And he's like, well, I've done some messed up stuff today. Would you forgive me? And he's like, I would. And then like, whenever he, whenever they're both dying, they have their arms around each other. So there's some really kind of sweet moments, despite the fact that this place is going to hell. It's burning down. So yeah, very powerful ending. Yeah. Great ending. But let's go ahead and kind of look forward now. Mm. Uh, We know Mike Flanagan has another project in the works. Matt, you did the deep dive here. Why don't you tell us about it? Yeah. So despite its title, there is no connection to Midnight Mass. But Mike Flanagan's next project is supposedly coming out in 2022 on Netflix as well. It is a series and it's called The Midnight Club. It is an adaptation of the Christopher Pike young adult novel from 1994 and it will incorporate several elements from follow-up novels. It follows a group of terminally ill patients living in a hospice that meet every midnight to tell each other scary stories. They eventually make a pact that whichever dies first will contact the others from beyond the grave. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, they have already confirmed that Zach Guilford, who played Riley, Samantha Sloyne, who played Bev, Matt Bedell, who played Sturge, Igby Brickney, who played Warren, Anna Simone, who played Lisa, and Crystal Ballant, who played Dolly, They will all return in some capacity for this show, so that's super cool. They're going to be joined by many new faces, including one I'm super excited about, the legendary Heather Ligenkamp from A Nightmare on Elm Street. She was the lead in that. So, guys, that cast and crew, any interest based on this premise? Are you excited for The Midnight Club from Mike Lanigan? You know, this one sounds like the one that could be geared towards being more scary if they're meeting to tell scary stories. I got to imagine those scary stories are going to kind of lead to um, like visual reenactments of the stories. That's what I'm thinking too. So uh, if it's going to be scary, I'm down for it. 
But really, if it just has Mike Flanagan's name attached to it, I'm down for it either way. Yeah, I'm definitely down for it. And I can definitely picture some people in like hospital gowns sitting around in the dark, just telling stories in a circle. It sounds really creepy. So Yeah, <laughs> sounds awful. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm I'm assuming and kind of hoping that like some of their scary stories like infect their real life or whatever and start effing them up like within this asylum or whatever you want to call it. So could be super cool, but I'm kind of with you, Austin. It's like at the same time, I don't really care if Mike Flanagan's name is on it. I'm always going to watch it. Netflix clearly loves the guy who's done like five shows with them in the in the span of five years. Like <laughs> he's moving quick. So I'm loving every minute of it. So I know rankings are tough for us, but I do want to pose the question and I'm going to say something bold. I think we're all going to say the same thing here. Maybe I'm wrong. Haunting of Hill House, Haunting of Bly Manor, Midnight Mass. How would you guys rank these? One, two, three. What do you got? I'm going to go number one, Hill House. Number two, Midnight Mass. And number three, Bly Manor. Same thing for me. Number one, Hill House. Number two, Midnight Mass. Number three, Bly Manor. I'm right there with you. It's my exact same ranking. The only caveat I would say is, I'm kind of with Austin. I have not rewatched Hill House in a while. So I am curious if I rewatch that now, if I would feel the same way about it. But since I haven't done that, in all fairness, Midnight Mass will stay at number two. But there you go. All three of us have the same ranking. I love it. This is a big moment on this show. We have never been unanimous in our rankings before. No. Oh, Never, wow. ever. Even though it's That's only true. three, we still have never been <laughs> unanimous in the rankings. <laughs> all right, guys, before we head to the outro, we have to do some awards. With TV, it's always a bit harder. There's so much to think about, so much to potentially praise, or I guess praise in a negative way. <laughs> but Austin or Keith, do you guys have an award? You have something that you're feeling particularly passionate about, something that you want to call out specifically, something that you would love to wrap a shitty Oscar lookalike award in cardboard or just paper and then shove it in your mailbox and send to a person or thing involved with the show, do you guys have something that you're going to award? Please, please tell me if so. I do have an award. It's something I am passionate about, mm. and that is fashion. No, oh, you and I'm are going to be giving the best dressed award to Father Paul. Oh. Whether he's rocking a gold chasuble, mm. whether he's rocking black skinny jeans, and he was, to be clear, <laughs> he was wearing black skinny jeans. Whether he's rocking a priest collar. This man is always dressed for the occasion. His hair is always looking His good. His hair, that's the key thing. He's always looking hot. He's a <laughs> dilf. This man <laughs> is simply the best dressed. Is it dilf or it would be a pilf in this case? He's a priest. <laughs> yeah, he's a priest, Austin. How dare you? He's also a dad. Oh, that's shit. That's true. All right. Sounds like regardless, we'd all fuck P Father Paul. So, Keith, <laughs> what's your word? <laughs> My award's also going to go to Father Paul. And that is the award for best chiropractor. The way he just snapped Riley's neck back in place <laughs> after he, he got killed from the uh, the vampire was pretty amazing. All right. So the award I'm giving today is one that I genuinely wish I could give to myself on a daily basis. But I can't because I am not the kind of person. My award is going to go to Lisa Scarborough and Warren Flynn. And they are getting the most 
Chill Award. They're very laid back for what is happening to them in this show. I agree. But there's one moment that is securing them this award in particular. And that's when they walk into a house after running away from their own family trying to kill them. And all these other vampires trying to kill them. And they're like, oh, it's so stinky in here. Why is that? And then they find a literal ancient vampire snacking down on their friend. And they're like, oh, no. And the friend's like, help. And they're like, don't say anything. And then they just stand there flashing a light at it. Eventually, like, I guess it didn't notice. And then they shoot it twice, dump (laughs) gasoline on it, and light it on fire. And the fact that they did that without making a sound, they get my most chill award. Not even close. There are, there are scenes like that where anybody else would do a jump scare there when she turns out the flashlight and then turns back on. There would be a jump scare with the vampire right there. Mike Flanagan doesn't do it. He doesn't go for that stuff. He doesn't go for the cheap scares, and I love him for it. Nothing cheap about our boy Mike Flanagan. Alrighty, so thank you everybody so much for listening. If you enjoy this episode, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss an episode. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing this with a friend, we'd really appreciate that to continue to grow the show. Please leave us reviews as well, even if you don't want to write anything. Leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just wherever you listen to us, it really would help us out. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. Our next main episode, though, is on Tuesday, and it's a big one. Because we are finally getting to cover No Time to Die, my friends. Finally, finally, finally. I cannot wait. We also reviewed the other Daniel Craig Bond films earlier this year, so go back and check those out as well to find out our current rankings. Guys, are you looking forward to this? Because, honestly, I've been hearing good things. I'm so excited. I want to see how Daniel Craig's Bond ends, and gosh, I just can't wait to watch this one in theaters. I'm looking forward to it, but I'm so nervous because two of these are hits. The other two, not so much. Uh, I'm just nervous. I hope they knock it out of the park, but I'm very nervous. I don't know if I'm really nervous. I'm more excited than I am nervous, but I get where you're coming from, Austin. I really hope they do wrap it up in a good way. But I think they're bringing some pretty cool characters back that we haven't seen in a while. Um, And I think they're just going to end it in an old school Bond way. I doubt Daniel Craig would read that script if you know and take it on if he didn't know they were gonna uh let him go in such an awesome fashion so i'm excited official guest keith daniel craig is james bond will he be dead by the end of no time to die no i don't think so i think he's gonna die because daniel craig wants so desperately to be done with this role <laughs> he was like write my death because i'm never coming back Who the hell knows? Regardless, we also have many more spooky episodes planned for later this month, including a bracket, of course. Don't worry, we are doing a bracket. We can't wait. It's going to be super fun. Look forward to that. And Austin, anything else? Should anybody go back to past episodes? Any future things you want to call out? What should people know about or look forward to? Like you said, we've got No Time to Die. We've got Dune. We've got The Matrix. We've got Spider-Man No Way Home tons and tons of new movies coming out on the back half of this year how are we going to cover them all well we don't really know that yet but we can't wait to wrap things up and uh, we're looking forward to 2022 lastly we want to hear from you please send us a message on instagram at the arnies or email us the arnies media at gmail.com send us your favorite movie of 2021 let us know your thoughts on midnight mass and your favorite mike flanagan show what are you dressing up for as halloween we want to know Anything you say, we'll read in the show and react to it live on our latest episode. 
I'm planning on going as a dead James Bond. So look forward to that. And in the meantime, my friends, we will see you later this week for What If and the week after for No Time to Die. Hope you like Midnight Mass. Let us know your thoughts. And with that, see ya. Have a good one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>